This week's author is Paul A. Barra. The author of A Son of Murder, Today's Story, Paul A. Barra has written and published five novels. His latest was West Faro Island, a finalist for the Silver Falchion. One of his short stories was selected for the award-winning MWA anthology, When a Stranger Comes to Town. His historical juvenile adventure, Samson and the Charleston Spy, will be published by Level Best Books in August. Welcome to Mysteries to Die For. I am T.G. Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to put you at the heart of a mystery. All stories are structured to challenge you to be the detective to the solution. These are arrangements, which means instead of word-for-word readings, you get a performance that's meant to be heard. Jack and I perform these live, front to back, no breaks, no fakes, no retakes. This is season seven, Games People Play. Games are about competition conducted according to rules with participants working toward a goal. Games are part of every culture and are one of the oldest forms of social interaction and engagement. Games can be fun. They can be challenging and exhilarating. They can also be intense, cutthroat, and lethal. This season, our authors have fashioned deadly games for your entertainment. This is episode two, Cow Flap Bingo is the featured game. This is A Scent of Murder by Paul A. Barra. Jack, before we get started with the story, exactly what setting do you have on your piano today? It's it's called uh, capital F, lowercase g, capital B and V, dot S11. I couldn't tell you what it means. You've never used that one before, have you? It's it's under the bass guitar uh, set. Okay. okay. So I, I, don't, I don't even know. <clears throat> no, I don't even know either. It's interesting. All right. Let's jump into our story now that we know what our setting is on our keyboard. Chapter 1, Emery James. Because I could not step for death, he kindly stopped for me. Emily Dickinson. I rolled the Crown Vic down the crack and patched old Charleston Highway at speed, although I wasn't late for anything. Ever since I got back from Southeast Asia and traded my army greens for county tans, I felt the need to exercise my freedoms whenever I could. This was one of those times, even though it's early enough on a Saturday morning in August of 1968, the fields on both sides of the road stuffed with mature tobacco plants, their big leaves glossy with dew. That there wasn't much traffic as I approached Titus Town. I was surprised to see 15 black men standing around under a live oaks on Emery James' corner lot. The back door of his huge white house was shut tight. The air was already wet and hot enough to fog my sunglasses when I stepped out of the air-conditioned sedan. Hip pocket lenders, the term used for men like Emery James who fattened their wallets by lending money on a handshake. They were common in rural South, and I had no intention of making an arrest out of this particular violation. The working poor who borrowed money from Mr. Emery paid back 105 the next week for every $100 they borrowed. They thought it was a good deal, but the annual interest rate was way over what the law allowed. 
My charge was to convince that state senator to lay low for a few weeks until the furrow raised by a newspaper article about his business subsided. I expected Mr. Emery to be reasonable. I did not expect the door to his office to be shut tight. He not open yet, buddy, I yelled. Buddy Jenkins was the first in the haphazard line behind the James Mansion, and he looked a tad aggravated. He also looked a little unsure of my name as I walked up in uniform, so I introduced myself. Sandy Buford, buddy. I was in school with your boy Nate, I said, and I shuck out, stuck out my hand. Yeah, sure, I recollect. You doing okay, deputy? We shook, and Buddy told me why he was aggravated. Mr. Emery ain't opened up yet, and we've been here near an hour, he growled. I considered that an ominous fact, since reliability was one of the cardinal virtues of a hip pocket lending. I had just turned to walk around to the front of the house when a woman's scream shredded the air. The men on the grass straightened up and began to murmur. I banged on the back door and reared back to break it down. Before I crashed into it, the door was pulled open suddenly from the inside. Adele James' face was wild-looking, makeup running as she peered out at me. Her beehive was wobbling a bit, but at least it was in place. Her eyes kept blinking as if she couldn't quite get them to focus. She blubbered some, but didn't say anything I could understand. I stepped smartly into the small office and saw Adele's husband's well-fed body slumped in his chair, facing the back door. A carving knife was stuck in Emery's chest and his blood had been splashed about. The blood was still running and his body was worn to the touch when I felt for a pulse. A tin money box was open on the desk in front of the body and it was empty. I realized the office door wasn't locked, even though it was closed. I never heard Adele unlocking it to throw it open when she discovered her hubby's bloody body. Emery's John Deere hat was squashed sideways on his head, as if someone had gotten in behind him, leaned over him, plunged the knife into him. My first suspicion was that one of the Bacufield workers had gotten too far in debt to Mr. Emery, slipped in and stole his money after knifing him. Right then, though, I had to get the crime scene set up for the investigators to figure things out once they got here. I closed the outside door to the side of the corpse. I steered Mrs. James out of the office and into the main part of the house through the second door in the office, the one behind the body. Other people began appearing in the living room, some still dressed in nightclothes. They must have been awakened by the widow's screams when she found her husband's corpse. The house had tall ceilings and thick walls, so the room was cool enough, but it would heat up fast with all these people raising sand as they were. Using my best command voice, I got them to settle down. Two younger women nested with a sudden widow on the love seat. No one stopped talking and questioning what had occurred, although it had quiet enough for me to think. The men outside were still standing around with questions of their own. Once they found out what had happened, they would disperse and I'd have no way of finding them again to question them. I went back in the office and opened the back door slit to call Israel Carter over and ask him to help. Just jot down the names of these fellows you know, Israel, and then tell them Mr. Emery has been stabbed. See if anyone knows anything. If they've seen anyone inside or hanging around the place. Okay, Sandy, Israel replied. I can do that. It was highly irregular, but would have to suffice until I could get some help out to the house. I called in the murder on the house phone and attempted to sort out who was who inside the house and where they'd been all morning. It was 
9.10 by my watch. By 9.30, I had established that the James family was hosting a gathering to spend the weekend in a sort of retreat to discuss the possibility of Emory running for U.S. Congress. He was already a state senator. Of the six people in the living room, the two men in pajamas were political consultants who had ridden down the train from Washington the day before. They were called Frank Burns and Samuel Cohen. The younger women were daughters of Adele and Emery, Susie and Sarah, neither married, both young and slender. Another middle-aged man was Mutt James, brother of the descendant. None of us could have done it, Mutt James offered in a gruff voice. We were up late in the big confab last night. Well, sir, I said, if you were asleep this morning, how could you be expected to know what the others have been up to? I believe we'll have to be checking out everyone in the house. I mentioned aloud that the cash box was empty. Did anyone know if Mr. James had it full up this morning? The oldest daughter, Susie, answered. Her fluty voice was about what I'd expect, given how skinny and pale she was. Daddy filled it every night before he put it in the safe, in case anyone wanted to borrow money in the morning. I said, we talking what, two, three thousand dollars then? At least, she said. But James spoke aloud again. That proves it must have been a burglary gone wrong. None of us would kill for that kind of money. Okay, I said, if y'all will just stay put till the sheriff gets here, I'm going to check out the house. Anyone else here? The maid in the kitchen getting breakfast ready, Susie had piped up again. The kitchen was a long walk from the living room and noisy with fans going. I figured the maid, who was also the chief cook and bottle washer for the James family, mightn't have heard Adele James scream when she found her husband's carcass. She was a woman I knew, Beauty Barnes. I used to play football with her younger brother, Champ. She looked up from the oven when she heard me come into the kitchen. Her face broke into a smile. Well, if it ain't my man Sandy, she said. All back from the war and back to work. You doing okay these days, Beauty? I asked. I'm so good I can't stand myself. Beauty always was a positive person. When she asked questions, though, she revealed in a loud whisper what was really on her mind. What's going on around here, Sandy? I seen them boys heading home all at once just now. And what are you doing here? I said, I'm afraid Mr. James has been killed. You see anything unusual when you come here this morning? Anybody you didn't recognize? She sat at the table, shaken. No, nothing. I got here at 6.30 cause I knew there'd be a mess to clean up after their uh, conference last night. My God, that's awful. He was a nice man to work for, although I really worked for Miss Adele. He paid me cash though. Did you see Mr. Emery Beauty or anyone else this morning? No, she said hesitating. Although I thought I heard the Buick drive off maybe eight. I can't swear to that cause I was right busy. I didn't see anyone. This here's a big old house and there's doors and stairways everywhere. Understandable, I said. The house locked up when you got here? She nodded. As far as I know, I got me a key to the kitchen door on the side here, and it was locked. I pointed to a knife block on the counter alongside a big black gas stove. Two of the slots were empty. You using both of them knives, Beauty? I asked her. 
She looked around as if she was seeing her work area for the first time, acting kind of frantic. No, she said. I only needed a paring knife to trim the chops. I figured the other empty slot used to hold the French knife that was now sticking out of Emory James. The handle of the murder weapon matched those still in the slots. Beauty waved her arm at the food she'd cooked. Platters of biscuits and bacon, grits, sausage rolls, scrambled eggs and white gravy, raspberry tarts. She even made the kind of thin pork chop Mr. James enjoyed on his weekend morning. What should I do now? Beauty asked. I was tempted to nab a chop and a biscuit. They did smell good, but I knew better than to be eaten at a crime scene. Instead, I said, well, I'd appreciate it if you could put that breakfast out that you got ready, Beauty. Keep the folks occupied till the sheriff gets here. This place is going to be full of police pretty quick. I left to check the house for a broken window or any other signs of forced entry. I didn't find anything amiss and came across old Israel Carter holding on to the list of a dozen men he knew from the line of clients. Ain't no one seen anything, Sandy. We just been hanging around waiting and flapping our gums under the big tree. Nothing unusual except the door ain't open 4-8 like it usually does. Thank you, Israel, I said. You best be heading home before the place is overrun with cops. I'll hunt for you if I have any news. Three or four minutes after Israel walked off, a patrol car from the Titus Town Police Department roared up, followed soon after by Sheriff Big Pete Martin and his assistant, and another county car with detectives in it, followed by the two remaining town police cars. Before noon, three detectives from the State Law Enforcement Division, better known as SLED, made it to the scene from their headquarters on the Broad River Road in Columbia, and a full-on police presence took over the late Emory James's house. I reported to Big Pete, an enormous man with a belly that forced him to wear his gun belt below it so that his Colt revolver hung halfway to his knee. The bones of that knee rubbed together from supporting Big Pete's weight for 60 years, so he was gimpy, but still a presence in a room. Sled investigators were known to feel superior to local men, but none of the three suits at the James place displayed any such attitude in front of Big Pete. He told everyone what to work on. He would question the house guests and the relatives of the victim personally. I ambled around the property in the noonday heat and tried to stay out of everyone else's way. I looked hard for any kind of anomaly. As far as I could see from my initial investigation, all the doors and the windows of the house had been locked. Beauty Barnes had let herself in with her key when she arrived at 6.30. She locked the door behind herself, as she always did, because she was the nervous type, especially when she knew men had been drinking, and cleaned up from the gab session the night before. Then she went into the kitchen and started baking and frying up. She hadn't seen a soul. While I was drifting around and looking for clues to the murder, I saw Beauty's husband, Jasper Barnes, drive to the kitchen door with cases of beer and boxes of tea. I couldn't quite tell who he was at first, but as I got closer to the kitchen door, I recognized him by the way he wobbled off one leg as he rushed out of his truck, carrying a leather bag, and drove off. I figured he wasn't too comfortable about all the lawmen around. I made a mental note to ask Beauty about the visit later. Right then, I was ready for lunch. It must have been one of you boys who owed Mr. Emery more than he could repay, 
or one of the people in the house, the way I see it, I told Israel Carter when we met up for cold sun drops on the rickety porch of Clarence's place in town. I don't know why anyone with money like those folks must have had would have wanted to steal the man's lending cash. They ought to have enough of their own. A gaggle of sweaty teen boys came drudging past the store just then, heading home from the last of their two-a-days, and telling themselves all that they were going to do now that they were free of running and blocking for a while. Football season started in six days. That reminds me, Deputy, Israel said, taking his feet down off the railing that was held up by posts canted and missing like his teeth. Tonight's the big cowflap bingo out at the high school. Every square's been sold, I hear. Half supposed to go to the football team for new helmets. Senator, Senator James been holding that money. Every square went for $100, so that's another $10,000 missing. Robbery was looking like the motive for murder. Well, shoot, I said, getting to my feet. I better tell old Sheriff Pete about that. Chapter 2 Adele James Cowflap bingo! Big Pete gave me a one-eyed squint when he asked that. Yes, sir, I answered. They got a pasture about an acre that's been hayed and the grass is growing back a little. The JV boys and coaches brought out their line-making machines and rolled out ten columns and ten cross lines, making one hundred squares. Each donor gets a square in his name. Just after the fried catfish supper, Katie Hammett lets her Jersey milk cow onto the field. When the cow shits, whoever square the poop lands on is the winner. Depends on how much she eats, it can take an hour or more. Sounds like an exciting time, Big Pete said. Well now, if the cow ain't real hungry, she'll wander around a bit when they put her in a new pasture, I said. There's a good bit of tension that builds up. The sheriff galumped at that, not taking the game too seriously. He was concerned about the money enough, though. That's another thing that don't make sense, Deputy Buford. The missing money wasn't in the house. Most we found was $68 in Mr. Mutt James' wallet. No one got the safe open yet. Well, that'll be interesting what's inside, I said. The newly widowed Adele James eventually found the secret note her husband had written in case he ever forgot the combination or took sick or died. It took her two hours on and off in between crying jags and rests on the couch with one daughter or the other. She was in some sort of shock over her husband's death and kept mumbling and moaning as she searched in shoeboxes and in drawers ineffectually, her hands trembling. Mrs. James never did truly find the note with the safe coat on it. As she was scratching through her jewelry box, the sheriff spied a corner of paper in the bottom under a scrum of pearls and reached over her arm to pull it out. He'd been solicitous to her condition all the time, but I thought he might have unveiled some pent-up exasperation at the pace of the search when he yanked the paper out with his fat forefinger and thumb instead of asking for it. It was a tired scrap of notebook with faded numbers on it. With the note in one hand, Big Peak worked the dial of the huge cast iron safe with Mossler painted on it in gold. It looked so heavy, I wondered how it was moved into the house all those years ago. The sheriff depressed the handle and opened it up. The interior was clean and shiny and empty. 
That's something now, Israel Carter exclaimed when I told him about the discovery. As we ate a late lunch of bologna and pimento cheese sandwiches, while sitting on some rocks besides the little P.D. River a couple hours later. Caused a ruckus among the uniforms and the suits, I can tell you, Israel. Everyone's sure it was an inside job now. The two fellas from Washington had a bit too much of Emery's bourbon last night, and they were blurry-eyed this morning. Don't seem like they could have killed a chicken, never mind a big man. I don't think they're suspects. Israel rubbed his scalp with his fingertips before saying, I don't reckon them wee fancy James girls would have had the strength or the gumption to stick a knife in their daddy. That cuts the possible suspects, don't it? The sky was turning dark with pregnant clouds by this time. Looked like we were about to get a typical summer thunderstorm. I asked my friend if he heard anything of his own community of itinerant workers who lived in the grove of the wrinkled trailers and weathered stacks and shacks next to it. One thing I found interesting, as they've been gossiping and drinking on Saturday afternoon, Israel said, one old boy named Bones saw the Witter James about two weeks ago riding in a Cadillac with Louise Depew. Well, I sat up at that. What? At old James with Madame Louise? That's hard to believe. Swears to it, Israel said. Still, I shook my head. Adele James is a mite long in the tooth and way too starched up to ever let her hair down in a joint like Louise's whorehouse. Bones must have been drinking some of that southern comfort you boys fancy. Israel laughed as if I missed the entire point of his intelligence report. We ain't never thought she was whoring around. Not proper old Miss Adele. No, sir, no, sir. He paused to sniffle some more, his eyes watering. Then he said... Louise runs a poker game out of her own house every Saturday night, except for Christmas Eve. None of us can afford to play. Never been invited. Talk is, Miss Adele likes to play. Well, I rumbled down to the Depew house, creating a stir when I pulled up, even though I wasn't running my red light or siren. It was too early for the heart of a card game, and I was able to extract Miss Louise without causing too much upset. After some cajoling out by her garage and warning off her big-chested husband, I managed to get her to admit that Adele James was a high-stakes card player. Not a very good one. Adele loves to gamble and lose, Miss Louise admitted, but she's all paid up. I asked the madam, just when was it that Adele paid her debt, Louise? Just recently, she answered after a minute. I told her I was going to have to talk to Mr. Emery and ask him for the money if she didn't come up with it. How much did Adele owe, I asked. Well, not enough to kill anyone over. That's all I'm going to say, Deputy. I certainly hope that mess down at her residence doesn't have anything to do with her weekly entertainment. It had everything to do with it. Once Big Pete learned of her gambling from me, he was able to lean on Adele James a smidge and collapse her denials like a rotten bed frame in the Depew brothel. I do admit that I like to bet on cards, Sheriff Martin, she said. I'm not real proud of it, but I manage my finances adequately, thank you very much, and needn't murder my husband for his lending cash. That admission got her to weeping and gnashing her teeth again. No amount of pressure from Sheriff Martin could make her admit to anything more than a naughty predilection for gambling at a house of ill repute. Big Pete turned to Beauty Barnes.
Chapter 3 Beauty Barnes Beauty was a hard-working woman, gainfully employed as a kitchen manager at Sophie's Soul Kitchen in town and willing to toil at the James Place on weekends to feed her large family. She had three children when I left for Vietnam and four by the time I returned home. Her husband, Jasper, was a veteran of the jungle fighting himself, but he came back with something missing. I believe he lost his ambition because after the war, he seemed to rely more and more on his wife for sustenance. Jasper could still work, despite a gimp brought on by some jungle rot he let go too far, but he never worked for a living after Vietnam. For a future, I mean. At one time, he'd drive the 65 miles to Myrtle Beach five days a week and come back with iced-down fish and shrimp in the bed of his pickup. Local people liked the seafood and bought up all he had every day. You would think he'd invest in a closed truck to improve his business or go to six days a week during oyster season or something. Instead, one day he just never showed up at his market stall under the towering hickory tree where the local farmers and craftsmen sell produce and stuff on Colonial Avenue. He never sold fish and shrimp again. That's what I mean by saying he didn't work for his future. I asked his wife about his visit to the James house earlier. I was having a time keeping up with all those people at the house wanting to slake their thirst. You know what I mean, Sandy, Beauty said. So I called my man and told him to bring me some provisions like. Of course, I said. How'd he get paid, Beauty? We ain't got paid yet. I'm just going to add what Jasper spent to my bill for the weekend, she said. Well, that explanation made sense, except that Jasper was carrying a satchel when he left. Had it tucked right under his arm and didn't lose it even when he opened the door to his vehicle and got in. What could have been in that bag that was so valuable to the man? Was it something Beauty had given him? It didn't give my husband nothing, Sandy, she said. We ain't got nothing, hard as I work. Them two skinny James girls each got a car worth near as much as my house, and they ain't never worked a lick in their lives. Beauty sounded head up for the first time. Maybe the other cops were questioning her hard like she was a suspect. Hoping to distract her from her anger, I asked who had access to the kitchen. Well, anyone in the house. There ain't no door except this one to the outside. People come in here all the time looking for a snack or a drink. She still sounded mad as a hornet. When I met up with Big Pete at the Cowflop Bingo Gala that evening, he asked me if I actually witnessed Jasper running off with the satchel. If I had second-hand info, Sheriff, I'd have said that right off. All right, Sandy, keep your shirt on, he said. This here murder is getting me a mite riled up, is all. I ain't sure any of the folks in that big house is telling me the truth. Just about then, a woman I knew to be Katie Hammock came walking up to the crowd came walking up to the crowd of us under the green and white striped tent the high school had erected for the occasion. She was leading a tan cow with big eyes like a deer and a friendly look about her. Her rudder wasn't too big, so I figured she wasn't feeding a calf or being milked. The cow looked skinny compared to a beef cow. That got some people energized. She ain't been fed in a while. She's going to start eating right off. This contest ain't going to last long. People moved toward the gate to the pasture. 
Katie, her gray hair covered with a flowery shawl, led the beast through the pasture and took off the rope bridle when Mayor Freeman rang the bell. The cow shook her head and moved right off onto the thick grass. She put her head down and tore off a chunk, then ambled on as she chewed, seeming to be unconcerned about the folks hollering at her to be a, to have a ball movement. Maybe she did this sort of bingo game every fall. This festival was a small town affair benefit in a school, so there were no beer or liquor sales going on. That didn't mean people weren't going out to their trucks for a nip or two on the side. I looked over at the parking lot and saw something that made me right suspicious. Not about drinking, neither. Chapter 4 Mutt James Out in the gloaming, outside the rim of the lights from the cowflop binger arena, a woman in a beehive hairdo leaved against a newish Buick. A middle-aged man drew up to her, his Panama hat over skin so pale that it reflected the light from the arena, distinguishing him from the rest of the men at this event. He looked to me like he didn't even venture out in the sun to go to lunch. He reached out his hand to the woman on the car, and she placed a handful of something in it. Panama looked closely at it and moved the fingers of one hand over the pile. I'd seen people buying drugs a time or two. And that's just what this woman and the Panama guy seem to be doing. In the school parking lot of little old Titus Town yet. I moseyed over for a look-see, circling away from them and then cutting back in front behind them. I got close enough to see them up close, just as the hat strolled away and the Buick drove off. I recognized the man in the hat, though. It was Mutt James, the victim's brother. Marion Mutt James was a white shoe lawyer down in Charleston. When I told the sheriff about what I'd seen and who, he got a trifle agitated. Hell's bell, Sandy. We done searched the rooms and the luggage. I should have checked everyone on for cash on their person as well. Good thing the house is locked down for the night. I said sort of quietly, I hate to tell you, Sheriff, but the woman in the parking lot looked a lot like the Widow James. What do you mean looked a lot like, he asked. Well, she had her hair piled up like a burning old bush Moses ran into, I said. And she was a little hefty. Emery and Adele James, they drive a red Buick. Shoot. A lot of women look like her around here. You better run over there and check out the James house, he said. See who's there. Mutt James and Adele were sitting in the living room of the big house when I got there about 9 p.m., along with the two daughters and the two men from the nation's capital. They were all spread out, some in pairs. The younger James' daughter, Sarah, maybe 16 or 17, got to her feet near as soon as I walked in the room. I'm heading off to bed, she told me, even though I hadn't asked. Kinda early, ain't it? I asked. I don't like being around when those fellows get started drinking. She nodded at the two political men from D.C. who were sitting at the other end of the big room out of earshot. I spoke quietly. They bothering you? Last night, they got loud and kind of vulgar, she whispered. You know what I mean? I stayed up too late. They must have thought I wanted to party with them or something. What time was that? Do you remember, darling? Yes, sir, she answered. It was right on one o'clock when they were halfway through a bottle of Daddy's Wild Turkey One Barrel. I came down this morning after Mama screamed and woke me up, and there was the pretty bottle, and it was flat empty. 
Beauty Barnes was still there too, serving coffee to Adele and their surviving James brother. What time did Emery go up to bed last night? I asked to no one in particular. But James answered, Oh, he's gone by ten. He's an early riser. Was. The hood of the family Buick felt warm when I'd come in. When I mentioned that, Mud said he'd run out for cigarettes. He was smoking. A straw hat hung from the hall tree in the foyer. Suspicious. I asked Mud if I could have a private word. We went to his room where I pointed to a pile of what I thought might be legal briefs and folders sitting on top of his night table. It seems to me, Mr. James, that those papers look important enough to be locked up in a briefcase or satchel or something. I didn't see one around. Mutt shrugged, slow and easy. I've been looking at them, son. In case you've forgotten, I've been locked up in this old house for nearly two days now. Looks like it's going to be the rest of the night, too, since the fat man told us not to leave the house. I need to keep up with my work. Maybe you should have listened to the sheriff then, Mr. Mudd, said at Benton on Cowflop Bingo tonight with your witter sister-in-law. Mudd's eyebrows arched smartly at that. I guess he didn't think anyone saw them out in the parking lot. His ample cheeks reddened and he blustered some. I wasn't betting. Adele told me it was a sure thing. What was a sure thing, I asked him. Adele's plan, he said. She bought up ten squares a month ago and had Beauty's husband plant some alfalfa seed in one of them. Brilliant idea, really. The seed sprouted, and by now the sweet seedlings will tempt that cow to stand over in our area eating them until she defecates on one of our squares. I expect to hear any minute now that we won the $5,000 prize. I had to admit, the scheme sounded like it might work. I kept that assessment to myself, though, because I had to find out more. I asked Mutt, why did Miss Adele let you in on it? Well, she didn't have enough cash to finance the plan, son. I just made an investment. What did Miss Adele give you out in the parking lot a while ago, I asked. The tickets to the squares we bought. She didn't want any of the locals to know that she'd won the money, Mutt said with a swarmy smile. Maybe he still felt all the money matters in Titus Town were small potatoes for a big-time lawyer like him. But I figured the missing 10000 from the cow flop proceeds plus the 3000 taken from Emery's hip pocket lending cash box added up to a tidy sum for anybody in 1968. And it was all gone. Perhaps Mr. Mud James wanted all that cash after all and was just pretending not to be interested. When I briefed Big Pete on all I found out, he assembled all the LEO working and the stabbing... Wait... He assembled all the Leo working the stabbing death of Senator Emory Janes to a conference room at the Titustown City Hall and went through what we knew. At the end, he gave the order to bring in our prime suspects. All right, Jack, we're at the deliberation. Alrighty. Before we get into the who and why of the story, though, I wanted to let everyone know that Mysteries to Die For remains ad-free. In exchange for not making you hit the fast-forward button, support our authors by digging into their backlist and picking up a title. This week is Paul A. Barra. Check out his catalog on his website uh, and from your favorite book retailer. Now, Jack. Yes. Deputy Sandy Buford has been doing a lot of running around, but he doesn't seem to be getting any place. It seems Big D Sandy is, you know, Yeah, let's stuck. see if we can help him out. So here are the people who were in Emory James's house when 
he could have been killed. When he could have been killed? What are you saying, Mom? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why I read it that way. All right. Idella James, the wife who is broken by her husband's murder. Interesting. Very good actress. Susan James, the eldest daughter, thin and pale, probably not strong enough to plunge a knife into a big man. I feel like they mentioned her twice in the whole story, yeah. if that. Sarah James, the younger daughter, who stayed up witnessing the two politicals getting drunk. Now, she was weird. I have my suspicions. Yeah. Frank Burns, lobbyist number one, spent his time eating and drinking with his friend Sam. The two of them, if if one of them did it, both of them did it. Because they're basically treated like one person. Yep. Sam Cohen, lobbyist number two. Both lobbyists looked as if they just gotten out of bed when Adele's scream woke the house. They looked like it, but they didn't have to have been, you know. Huh? Mutt James, Emery's brother. Weird fella. Beauty Barnes, the caterer working the weekend at the James house. Ah, she's innocent. Wife of Jasper. Wife of Jasper. Okay, here's what we know about them. Okay. With the exception of Beauty Barnes, all the others stayed up late strategizing on Emery's political future. Beauty right. arrived at 6.30 in the morning using her key to the kitchen door. Mm-hmm. Emery James did not open his hip pocket. I kept... It's hard to say too many times. Hip pocket loan operation at eight, as was normal. There had been recently been a news article about his business. Wasn't it like a slander piece? Yeah. A crowd of would-be borrowers had assembled outside the door to Emery's office. They all knew there was a box of cash on Emery's desk, and many of them were probably already in debt to Emery James. Ah. Adele James was a gambler who lost. And she had recently paid off her debt. Interesting. I feel like she could have gotten it just in her own ways, mm-hmm. you know? Unless she was gambling behind her husband's back. Is I that don't know. is that the I know, they really don't talk about that, do they? Because Paul. I feel like if he knew, then he would know she sucks and he would be financing this little hobby. Huh. And thus there'd be no reason to kill and steal all the money. Well, Madame Louise said that she was gonna have to go to Go to Emery if Adele didn't pay up. So it seems like it seems like Emery didn't know, or maybe didn't know how much she was losing. Um, Adele knew that her husband had money in the safe, including the cow flop bingo money, but claimed not to know the combination. Yet it was found in her jewelry box. It was. Beauty Barnes picked up the jo- James job. Man, there's too many J's in this story. <laughs> picked up the James job for the extra money. Her husband was seen leaving the the house by the kitchen door. He had delivered drinks and was seen leaving with a satchel. Although Beauty said they had not been paid and she had not given him anything. Yeah, apparently in that satchel all there is is a couple tickets. You don't need a whole satchel for tickets. Didn't he say that in the in the satchel he was just picking up the tickets for the uh, the cow? No, that was when that was when Mutt met. Adele in the parking lot at the cow flop bingo thing. Oh, oh, the satchel was when he left the night of the murder, right? The morning of the murder. Morning, morning of the murder. Yeah, I remember it was like 9 a.m. when Sandy satchel. got there. He dropped off the beer and tea and left with the satchel. I'm feeling like it's a Mutt and Adele murder duo. So you're saying that Katie Hammett's cow flop cow should flop it on Adele and Mutt? That was a mouthful. <laughs> Um, Good thing it wasn't written down, because if I had written that down, I would not have been able to say it. Yeah, I think Mutt did the murdering, but Adele had was probably a big reason for the, um, what is it, the uh, motive for the murder? Yeah. 
uh, whether they're like having an affair or they're going in on some financial stuff on their own. Again, it feels weird that Adele would need to do anything to get money, seeing as her husband's rich, therefore she's rich. Yeah, so there's $13,000 missing. We don't know how much was owed to... Was Different it? people? Yeah. Well, to Madame Louise. For the gambling? Yeah. Yeah. You know what else is interesting is even though he was in the house and he knows the money is missing, that uh, Mutt James still thinks that he can win the cowflap bingo game. Why wouldn't he be able to? The money was stolen. Oh, oh, you're, huh. You're right. He is still keen on winning, despite the fact that there's no money to win. Maybe he's just trying to keep up appearances, you know, to throw everybody off, but. Maybe he thinks it's insured, but it didn't mention insured. <laughs> I think it's insured. This is just Can a. Can you insure $10,000 cash? Can I, I insure my money? I don't, I, I don't know about <laughs> that, but I'm saying that this is 1968 small town fundraiser for helmets for the jv football team it's no a- it's not insured <laughs> <laughs> well he's the governor maybe he can get insurance for anything he's not the governor he's a state senator senator he was running for governor they was thinking was running about for running for for congress i don't know where i've been getting governor from i don't either i just think i've been thinking about holcomb a lot anyway oh, okay. um i think mutt did it with adele being the main motive for mutt all that right. is my 411. All right, so all you out there in the listening verse, I hope you got your suspect. Before we go to the big reveal, I want to let you guys know that the companion books for the last three seasons are available. So that is A Word Before Dying, uh, Move It or Lose It, and my favorite, Things Like Go Jack in the Night. They're available from ebook or in ebook and trade paperback from online retailers. Um, This season's book is going to be released in two parts because we are doing a whole season. So part one will be released in March. So that will be Games People Play, Opening Gambit. And part two will be released in September. Buy one for yourself and one for a mystery lover you love. The dimes and quarters from the book sales do support the podcast and they keep Jack in tacos and headphones. Links are in the show notes. With that, we will go into chapter five, The Big Reveal. Big Pete Martin arrested all three suspects and placed them in separate holding rooms at the police station attached to City Hall. He and his detectives questioned the three of them off and on for most of Sunday until one broke and made a confession. Adele admitted to stabbing her miserly husband and stealing all of his loan money before anyone else was up in her big house. She heard Beauty Barnes let herself into the kitchen, but by then, Emery Janes had expired Adele had to pay off her accumulated debt before Louise would let her into another game that night. Emery wasn't having any of that. Oh, of course I knew the combination of Emery's old safe, she said. That's where we kept all our valuable papers for the house and our investments, nearly 30 years worth. He laughed at me when I asked for money to pay Louise. I went and got the big ass knife from the kitchen in a fit of anger, and once he was dead, I figured I might as well take the cow flop bingo money as well. In for a penny, in for a pound. I borrowed Mutt's satchel and stuffed the money in it, and then I called Jasper and had him take it away and hide it. Did Mutt know you took his satchel? Big Pete asked. She lifted her chin, shrugging. Probably. 
Uh-huh, Big Pete said. Jasper know the sack was full of dollars? Not exactly, Adele said, but I bet he looked. The widow's face was awash in tears and snot when the patrolman placed handcuffs on her and let her out. As Adele James trotted out to the patrol car, I noted that her hairdo was still a monument to the enduring power of hairspray. I was a bit surprised how the affair had all played out. I assumed when I saw Emery James's corpse that he'd been killed by some field hand who owed more money than he could pay back. Susie and Sarah James ended up settling in the house once the news media hoopla died down and her mama and their mama was sent off to Lith State Prison out in the wilds of Greenwood County. As the winter cold settled in along the Little Petey River, I wondered who was filling the void created by the murder of Emery James. As Israel Carter said to me, You ought to have known right off that none of us would kill Emery, Sandy. We can't survive without the money he lent us each week. The end. So you kind of had it. A little bit. I had it a little bit. Look, I... So what was the point of... Of... Mutt uh, doing that half-and-half half thing with uh, Adele after the money was gone then? Well, so Mutt was not in on it. So he didn't either... He, he didn't know that the money was gone? Well, he certainly didn't know that Adele stole it. Well, I, I figured he didn't know that. No one knew that. That's the whole point of the story, but... Still, he he must not have known the money was missing, which I guess, but he was stuck in that house. I don't know. Maybe so he didn't he know. Did know. I mean, if it, it's a little detail, but I'm not sure. It's a little detail. Well, other than that, I did thoroughly enjoy this. And I also would like to remi- remind all listeners that the reason the hairs got up that big was because we used hairsprays that ripped ozone out of our sky. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? We wanted hairspray so strong that it would kill the sky. I think that's pretty impressive of wow. us. You know, the human race wow. liked our hair so much. I don't think I don't think we murdered knew. the atmosphere. I don't think we knew at the time that it had that side effect. Nonetheless, it just it's cosmetic. pretty funny when you think about it. <laughs> beehive. Every time you see a picture of a beehive, you know, haircut, that lady helped murder. The atmosphere. The murder. Anyway. The, the the atmosphere is not alive, so you can't well, it, murder something that's not alive. We still have holes in it. We do have holes in it, and that is bad. Uh huh. All that because of uh, of hairspray. hairspray and other things. Not the musical. And other things. So, Jack, you want to learn about cow flop bingo? Of course, I do. It's also known as cow plop bingo and cow pie bingo. There are several videos on YouTube. See the links in the show notes. From my not extensive research, cow flap bingo is played as a fun way to raise money for a charitable cause when it's not insured, um, with the winning with the winner splitting the pot with the charity. So just like it was set up here. When did cow flap bingo originate? No idea. Couldn't find anything on it. I suspect it wasn't long after humans domesticated cows that some bored cow hand bet another bored cow hand on where a particular cow would poop next. It seems like something guys would do, don't you think? I don't think girls would do that, but guys would do that. Turns out this game can be more than a walk in the field. First, it can take hours for the cow to get down to business. And then there is the complications of the cow patty landing in more than one square. In Connecticut, 
cow flap bingo is regulated under state code 17231, an act considering municipalities and bingo games, bazaars, and raffles, where qualifying organizations can conduct a cow chip raffle once a calendar year. I don't know why I thought that was so hysterical that in some states, this is regulated as a fundraising gambling event. <laughs> Just, I got a kick out of that. All right, let's learn a little bit more about Paul. Paul Abara is a chemistry teacher, a former newspaper reporter, and a naval officer. He was awarded the Brown Star with Combat V and other decorations for his service on the rivers of the Mekong Delta. He is married and has eight children with his wife, the former Joni Lee. They reside in Columbia, South Carolina. Help support Paul and make writing for Mysteries to Die for the best decision he's ever made by going to his website and buying his books. Then write a review and help other mystery lovers find him. The links are in the show notes, as well as to his social media. So that wraps up this episode of Mysteries to Die For. Show your support by subscribing, telling a mystery lover about us, giving us a five-star review. Check out our website at tgwolf.com forward slash podcast for links to the season's authors. Mysteries to Die For is hosted by T.G. Wolf and Jack Wolf. A Scent of Murder was written by Paul A. Barra. Music and production are by Jack Wolf. Episode art is by T.G. Wolf. Join us next week for a toe tag, which is a first chapter from a fresh release in the mystery, crime, or thriller genre, and then come back in two weeks for our next original story, Cards Against Jake by Jim Winner, where Cards Against Humanity is the featured game. I can't decide if it's Cards Against Humanity are the featured game or is the featured game. I think it's got to be a is. Either way, come back in two weeks for a heck of a good story. All right, Jack, take us out.